1: Money, power, and sex.
0: That's what this case is about. The defendant, Lori Vallow Daybell, used money, power, and sex, or the promise of those things, to get what she wanted. What she wanted was money, power, and sex.
3: This is Gem State, The Trials of Chad and Lori Daybell, Episode 4. I'm Sarah Jacobson. I'm joined by Gem State producer Ryan Oswald. Together, we're breaking down what's happened this week in the trial of Lori Vallow Daybell.
4: Yeah. This was the first week of actual trial proceedings. As you know, last week was actually the uh, jury selection process. Um, And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that we were able to actually make it through all of that. As we covered in our, our last episode, there was 1,800 people that were called for For jury duty, so we made it through. This was the opening week of actual trial proceedings, though, and we do have audio recordings from each day at trial. We will be reviewing several of the major revelations that have happened so far. Um, We do have kind of a quick warning right off the bat for everyone, though. Some of the audio we're going to play, we have done our best to kind of trim around some of it. We're here to inform we're here to report the news we're here to uh, make sure that uh justice is seen to be done right that we're we're being very transparent about everything but um despite that several several of the moments are really disturbing just the content that we're dealing with can be very difficult to listen to so we want to give our listeners a fair warning on that
3: Definitely. And if you're also just joining us for the first time, we do cover the case and everything that kind of led up to us right now in trial in episodes one and two of our podcast. So I recommend going back, taking a listen to both of those before getting into this. And they'll put you with they'll help you put a lot of what you hear in this and subsequent episodes kind of in context.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Monday morning began the trial proper uh, now that the jury has been sworn in and seated. Uh, so the prosecution began with their, their opening statements.
0: Tylie Ryan was a vibrant young woman, 17 years old, a whole life ahead of her. She was just about to enter into adulthood and make her own way in the world. Who knows what she would have become? Tylee had already lost her father, and she received Social Security benefits because of that. Tylie had money. Lori wanted it, Tylee's gone. Joshua Jackson Vallow, lovingly known by friends and family as JJ, was a seven-year-old, vibrant, happy-go-lucky little boy. He had most of his childhood and his whole life ahead of him. But JJ was, was tough, he's, he's a seven-year-old. He took a lot of time and effort and energy to care for. That time, effort and energy took away from the defendant doing what she wanted to do and from the defendant being with Chad Daybell and devoting her time and attention to him. J.J. had also lost his father. And when J.J. lost his father, he became even that much more difficult to care for. No longer a second parent to help. Not only that, J.J. also was entitled to Social Security benefits. The defendant didn't want to have to take care of J.J. anymore. She wanted the money. J.J.'s gone. Tamara Douglas Daybell, known by friends and family as Tammy, a 49-year-old mother of five, a grandmother, a computer whiz by all accounts. She was married to Chad Daybell. The defendant wanted Chad all to herself. Chad was the beneficiary of a life insurance policy for Tammy. Lori wanted those things. Tammy's gone. Tylee is seen is on June 9th of 2020. She's found buried in a shallow grave on Chad Daybell's property. And when I say she's found, what I mean is what was left of Tylee was found. Charred remains. That's what was left of Tylee. You will hear it described as a mass of bone and tissue. That's what was left of this beautiful young woman, the defendant's daughter. You will also hear how Tylee's DNA was recovered on a pickaxe and shovel (coughs) located in a shed on defendant Daybell's property. JJ was last seen on September 22nd of 2019 at the defendant's apartment in Rexburg, Idaho. Last time J.J. was seen, he was with his uncle, Alex Cox, the defendant's brother. You'll hear from a witness that he saw Alex Cox carrying J.J. J.J.'s head on his shoulder appeared to be a peaceful scene. It appeared J.J. was sleeping at that time. J.J. was not seen again until June 9th of 2020 when he was also found in a shallow grave on the defendant's property. J.J. was found wrapped in garbage bags with duct tape around him. He had duct tape around his head. He had duct tape around his arms, taping them into a position like this. That's how the defendant's little boy was found.
3: Yeah, this this was a pretty powerful opening statement from the prosecution. Now, they laid out the case, what the jury can kind of expect as we move through the trial. Also, they didn't hold back any punches when it came to some of those details that we're expected to hear about later on in the trial, too.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I don't think anyone expected them to. Obviously, they're going to come out swinging. You have to make mm-hmm. with how much pomp and circumstance for lack of a better, mm-hmm. yeah. better term. Uh, how much attention this trial has drawn uh, nobody expected them to to you know come out and soft shoe the the opening statement but that was some of that was a real gut punch yeah I, def- I think the term what was left of Tylee's body was especially chilling
3: hmm Definitely. And of course, we do have audio from in the courtroom. Um, so again, listener discretion advised on that. But really, um, it's to paint a picture, of course, for the jury to be able to see exactly what happened during this time. And also, yeah, of course, as Ryan said, you're making that case, you want to make sure right out of the gate that you're making, that you're giving the jury a real look at what at what exactly happened.
4: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and putting forth uh, the evidence and the the interesting thing, opening statements is the chance where the attorneys can really say how they feel about mm-hmm. things. They can really, you. It's, it's not the same as when they're actually uh, uh, having somebody testify, right? Where mm-hmm. you can actually object to that. There's the actual court proceedings they have to follow. In opening statements, that's different. Right. Mm-hmm. They can kind of I don't want to say they can say whatever they want, because that's not right.
3: Not but, exactly. But at the same time, they can really lay out they can lay out what they're seeing on their side of the case. Again, they're making they're trying to make their case strong and, right. and really seeing the the difference between the prosecution and the defense, I think, was the biggest part of the start to this trial.
4: Absolutely. As as you'll hear next, uh, this is the defense's opening statement. I've,
5: I've been assigned to. Uh, 27 murder cases over the course of my career and They're difficult. They're difficult cases. Uh, I was assigned to this case. Uh, I'm paid by the taxpayers and So thank you for paying your taxes Um, I've had a general practice where I I do a little bit of everything and, uh, and then I, I get about one of these difficult cases a year assigned to me and, and uh, we do what, what, what we can. What does a defense lawyer do? Uh, we make sure that our client's constitutional rights are protected. We make sure that the government does its job. We make sure that proof beyond a reasonable doubt is in place before there's a before there's a decision so so with these difficult cases
4: as you can tell that that's a pretty stark contrast to what we saw from the prosecution the defense seemed Mm -hmm. flat almost i don't not not to harp on on him or Mm -hmm. any of the defense i think uh they're they've been doing the best that they can with what can only be described as a difficult case to be yeah to be handling right now um but i'm i'm not entirely sure that his joke about you know paying your taxes landed he kind of brushed right through it Mm -hmm. um it didn't land like a joke and then um explaining his how hard his job is as a defense counsel i'm not sure that that
3: maybe not the time to yeah be laying out that that you had a difficult time with the case at the at the very beginning you know in those opening statements right and yeah as a side note too I just want to say it also appears and if you listen really really closely it almost seems like he comes dangerously close to saying before finding them guilty when he quickly recovered and then said before giving a verdict instead
4: right I noticed that that you you could see him kind of try and eat that word almost back in before he actually was said comes to a Mm -hmm. decision. I thought that was kind of an interesting, interesting moment. And it might, obviously this is our opinion Mm -hmm. on this. We don't actually know, but at least in my opinion, I feel like he might've been, um, they, they, I think they know which way the wind is blowing with this. They know the mountain of evidence that is against Lori. I think their biggest victory really barring something, some miraculous event for their for their client. I think the biggest victory happened before we even got to trial and that was getting the death penalty taken off the case, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. And this all of course happened because there was evidence that came forward and it was too much for the defense to be able to go through ahead of the trial. So again, that's another thing. As we're kind of seeing this defense, the opening statements kind of falling a little bit flat, you keep in mind they have a bunch of evidence that they're currently going through right now that the judge doesn't believe that they'll be able to get through in time.
4: Absolutely. We saw there was something that came through and this it was DNA evidence that the prosecution was able to get processed. It mm-hmm. was a later discovery DNA evidence that they were able to get admitted. But what happened when they got it admitted into the trial and in, into the court record? That's ultimately what separated mm-hmm. the case of Chad and the trials of Chad and Lori, right? Yeah. Because now Chad, who did waive his right to a speedy a speedy trial, mm-hmm. his attorneys can take as long as they want to go through this mountain of evidence. Lori did not. So they have to go to trial one way or another now.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: And the judge says, look, Judge Boyce said, look, this is... What it what was it it was 40 hours of audio yeah. recordings it was some 1800 different mm-hmm. documents that they'd have to pour through and so there was there was a mountain of evidence and I think judge Boyce agreed there's no way they they can reasonably go through this before trial
3: yeah it really makes you wonder how prepared her defense really is to be able to um d- defend her case
4: you you really have to f- feel like you you're at, at a bit of a disadvantage there mm-hmm. just understanding that the prosecution has this team of people plus their experts mm-hmm. plus the the detectives everybody who's been doing all of the you know investigating that can tell you oh this is what i found here's what this means the defense only gets copies of all of that right so it's their investigator mm-hmm. that can help mm-hmm. it's you know it's kind of their their process to to go through this but they're they're at a bit of a disadvantage here
3: no, definitely. And we'll dive a little bit more into some of that cross-examination too.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Our next up here, we have uh Kay Woodcock was actually the first who was uh mm-hmm. the first witness who was called to testify. Yeah, first uh, on the stand. First on the stand, Kay is JJ's grandma and uh, she and her husband Larry Woodcock were actually the impetus for what started this whole investigation, right?
3: Yeah um, Lori said that, she, that JJ was staying with the couple again, Larry and Kay Woodcock. She um, told a lot of people that she was staying with them. And then again, when police came to, to try to find JJ, she was also using that defense. Alex and Chad were as well. But, um, but Kay, yeah, Kay is actually the one who began, began right. with police beginning to find where JJ was.
4: Right. She started, she called Gilbert police mm-hmm. back in Arizona where, uh, where Lori lived right before she moved up to Rexburg with her previous husband, Charles Vallow. Mm -hmm. That's where Charles died. Uh, And so then Kay Woodcock, you know, again, JJ's grandma, Mm -hmm. she was the one who started bugging Gilbert police. And then subsequently Rexburg police saying, you guys have to go do a wellness child welfare check on, on JJ. I cannot get a hold of him. And that really is, kind of the impetus of where that got the ball rolling on all of this.
3: No, definitely. And there were about two key moments in case testimony that really stood out.
4: Absolutely. Let's take a listen.
6: Did you attempt to arrange with Lori for JJ to attend Charles's memorial service? Yes. Where was Charles's memorial service held?
2: In Lake Charles.
6: Okay. How did you communicate about that with Lori?
2: I I don't remember if it was a phone call or a text, I don't know, but she had agreed that J.J. could attend the memorial service.
6: Okay, and did you have a plan for picking him up and (laughs) the logistics (laughs) of that?
2: Yes, I was. I bought plane tickets for me to go to Phoenix and pick him up, get him from her, and to fly back to Lake Charles and attend his memorial service, his dad's memorial service. And we were going to have him for a week. And then I was going to fly back to Phoenix with him and give him to Lori and then, then fly home.
6: Okay. Uh, Did JJ end up attending his father's memorial service?
2: No, he wasn't
6: allowed to. Okay. And did you speak with Lori about that or communicate with Lori about that?
2: She, again, she wouldn't answer any of my Anytime I try to reach out, she wouldn't answer me. Okay. Uh,
6: was Lori at Charles's memorial service? No. Okay.
1: Yeah,
3: so again, not letting your son go to his father's funeral, especially when your brother was the one who actually killed him. Yeah, it it just seems uh, it just seems exceptionally cruel.
4: It really does. I don't I don't know a way to, an, another word for that. Cruel yeah. feels, feels like the thing. And especially when Kay was the one who was going to do everything. Really, Lori didn't have to. No. She wasn't being asked to attend the funeral. She didn't, you know, she wasn't going to have to do anything. Kay had made arrangements to fly from Louisiana, where mm-hmm. the memorial was being held, to Arizona to come pick up J.J., fly back to Louisiana with him exactly
3: he, doing all the legwork
4: everything then he would stay down there for a week was her plan mm-hmm. and then she would bring him back to Arizona uh, you know effectively taking care of 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 everything there and so there's really no excuse other than just either being petty or mm-hmm. or you know as you as you said being cruel
3: yeah no there's a lot of ways to to be able to withhold that kind of thing and I think that that's a power move on Lori's part as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of probably alludes back to what the prosecution was saying in in their opening statement, right? About about just power, mm-hmm. right? Finding power over other people, over different individuals, and yeah, it's,
3: especially when it's a you know a child, and and your father dies, you, you need to be there for that. But yeah. in this case, again, it's another it's another sign of Lori using that power to be able to or wield that power rather to be able to manipulate others.
4: Right. Absolutely, to control the situation and. Uh, and then again, I think this next piece, mm-hmm. while that that last uh, bit that we played there, really shows kind of more the state of mind. Mm-hmm. This actually is was a pretty damning piece of of evidence. I thought that that Kay testified to.
3: Oh yeah, I gasped when I heard it. Yeah.
2: Well, I talked to numerous people that day regarding it
6: because I was shocked at what I found. Okay. I. Uh- did you look further um, into that Amazon account? Yes.
2: I got into the browsing history in the Amazon account, and I saw um, that there was browsing for a, a beach wedding dress, um, a, a, a bathing suit, uh, men's large size i think it was large um white linen top and pants um and malachite wedding rings and there were a couple other little odd name things i believe maybe flip-flops or something
6: was there a date associated with that browsing history that you saw yes what date was that october 2nd of what year 2019 uh was there a reason that caught your attention
2: yes because i learned i had learned uh before that that tammy daybell had passed away on october the 19th and and just
4: yeah gasped is is the right word uh this is a big revelation it it almost i i felt like the prosecution almost steamrolled through it a little bit Mm -hmm. uh instead of kind of letting that that moment be the revelation that it was but you know i mean obviously i'm not a prosecutor we're we're Monday morning quarterbacking this thing, <laughs> but uh, that's a that's a big deal. Kay had been helping Charles with his bookkeeping, mm-hmm. right? Helping him with his business, so she had access to all of his accounts, all of his emails, all of his computers, things like that. And so then she was describing how she had taken back a printer, scanner, computer, mm-hmm. things like that, from Charles after after he died in the middle of the night she woke up and just had this what she said was this like call like this urge you got to go log on
7: yeah
4: it's it's giving me chills thinking about it she got up and found this amazon history what I mean, what what did you think when you?
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty eye opening when uh, you do look at that list of things that Lori was buying. Now, keep in mind, it was um, some items for her trip to Hawaii, like clothing, of course, but um, but the one that really got us was a wedding ring. Again, this is two weeks, two weeks before Tammy Daybell even died.
4: I, that's, I. There's nothing you can say about that. If you're buying wedding rings. And then you marry, yeah, the guy, but you buy wedding rings two weeks before his wife is even dead.
3: Again, yeah, Tammy's still alive at this point, still still living in Rexburg in their home where the children were found.
4: That's so, yeah. It's it boggles it boggles my mind. Yeah, That's
3: so, again, it it points to premeditation on, on every account.
4: Absolutely, no, it it really does. That's a. Uh, that's it's a pretty uh, what I, I can't like it, it really has taken takes takes the words away. It's such a brazen move to be ring shopping.
3: Yeah, it's bold. It's a bold move.
4: It, it really is. And I think, again, it it really comes back to how the prosecution laid out. This is about sex, money and power. Mm-hmm. And it it is. But that's it. It also comes back to kind of this exceptional level of cruelty. Yeah, that's so cold. It's one thing that you know you you both have this this point. We've fallen in love. Mm-hmm. I've fallen out of love with you know my previous partner. We're gonna get divorced. I we're gonna be together. You know you, me me and Chad are gonna be together forever now.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: that most that's people just cruel. get a divorce. You yeah, know? <laughs> right. But to to really have this this premeditation that you're, you're expecting you're going to be getting married pretty quickly. Yeah. If you're, you're buying the wedding rings. I
3: mean, Amazon has two day shipping,
4: right? Yeah. No kidding. Oh man. Okay. Um, I think one thing that we need to make sure that we again, kind of remind our listeners of coming up here is Mm. uh, some of the more difficult bits of testimony. Uh, I think all of the testimony we heard this week was, was difficult. Uh, was was challenging. Again, this is a trial about two children that were murdered,
5: mm-hmm.
4: not to mention Tammy Daybell, who was murdered, as as we'll cover here, Um, and then Charles Vallow. I think Charles Vallow, the, I think the poor guy has, it's a footnote in, in yeah. all of this. I mean, some, but, pe-
3: some people, um, you know, who are just new to the case don't even understand about Charles or Tammy even. So,
4: when right. you start
3: having more than, I mean, what is it now? Four, five deaths?
4: Right. If you include Alex Cox, mm-hmm. that's that's five deaths. And I know the medical examiner did say that Alex Cox died under um, uh, normal circumstances, mm-hmm. is what they what they said. They said it was normal, normal causes. Mm-hmm. Although strange, yeah. I I'm going to call it suspicious. That's me again. Yeah. My opinion. I'm not a detective. It. It seems very strange, and especially when you hear t- that in testimony that the day before Alex Cox died, mm-hmm. he's on the record saying, "I really hope I am not their fall guy." Finally, meeting n- Chad and Lori's
3: finally putting the pieces together, possibly,
4: possibly, right? Yeah, I mean, as much as you can. This is a this is a pretty pretty intense jigsaw puzzle of, of everything that that we've been going through here and i think uh, again just just a heads up to our listeners mm-hmm. a lot of the testimony from this point going forward is pretty especially difficult
3: yeah so just um yeah just make sure that you um take your time if you need to um but again there is viewer discretion advised but we are going to be going into this case so um detective Hermes. oh sorry let me maybe i'll talk that over sorry yeah um. Yeah. So, again, it is listener discretion advised. If you do need to take a little time to pause, definitely do that. But um, we're going to start off with Detective Hermesio with the Rexburg Police Department. He testified about the investigation, um, the discovery of J.J. and Tylee's bodies on Ch- Chad Daybell's property in Rexburg, Idaho. Right. Now, um, his testimony, it lasted for the entire day of Tuesday. And then it even went in a little bit to Wednesday morning. And he began describing, you know, how people became involved in the case after being contacted by Gilbert Police, um, who were also investigating Lori and Alex Cox at this point in time. And that case then took a turn when Kay Woodcock, again, we talked about this, started asking about welfare checks on JJ. And that's really when the ball started rolling.
8: As we pulled up behind the residence, there's a garage area on the west side. Outside the garage area, we had located Alex Cox and Chad Daybell, who were unloading a pickup truck.
6: Okay, Did you speak with Alex Cox or Chad Daybell that day? We did. Uh, how did that conversation go?
8: I walked up to Alex and I asked Alex if Lori was home. Uh, he told me she wasn't home. I then asked Alex if he knew where JJ was at. We were there to do a welfare check on JJ. Um, at that point, Alex got a blank look on his face, kind of a, a frightened look, looked over at Chad Daybell, who was on the other side of the pickup truck. Chad then looked at Alex, um, and they both kind of just looked at each other and, and didn't answer my question initially.
6: Okay. Uh, what did you think about that conduct?
8: Uh it raised some red flags just based on their the way they acted with that question. Um, I I then again asked Alex if he knew where JJ was at, and he stated that JJ was with Kay in Louisiana.
6: What did you think of that response?
8: I told Alex that wasn't likely because Kay was the one who called in for the welfare check. Um, and then again, they both kind of just looked at each other, which again raised our suspicions.
6: Did you speak with Chad Daybell at that time?
8: I personally didn't speak to Chad at that time, no.
6: Okay. What did you do next?
8: I asked Alex if there was a way I can get a hold of Lori. Uh, he stated she wasn't home. I asked Alex where I could find Lori, and he stated that she was in apartment 107 in the same complex, just a different apartment. That time I asked Alex if he had Lori's phone number and he stated he didn't have it.
6: What did you think when he stated he didn't have her phone number?
8: I assumed he was lying because they were close. And based on our investigation thus far with Gilbert, we knew they were close, um, so I assumed he was lying to me about the not having his sister's phone number.
6: Okay.
8: Asked Chad when was the last time he saw JJ, and Chad told me it was in October in apartment 107 with Lori Vallow.
6: Okay, did you ask him anything else?
8: I did, I asked him how he knew Lori Vallow And he stated that he hardly met her, hardly knew her, that he had only met her a couple of times.
6: Okay. Uh, What did you think about that response? Sustained. Okay. Was there anything suspicious to you about that response? There was. What was that?
8: We knew that Lori Vallow... And Chad Daybell had been married two weeks prior to my contact with him.
6: Okay. But he said he hardly knew her.
8: That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so
4: Detective hermesio says, um, I think he says it best, right? It's mm-hmm. it's red flags. When you go and you meet Alex Cox and Chad Daybell for the first time, and you're just trying to ask, hey, have you guys seen J.J.? Have you seen this little boy? We're just trying to make sure he's okay, And you get nothing but kind of evasive answers or no answers.
3: Well, yeah, when you can't answer the simple question of where are your kids? You know, where where's your wife? Do you have your sister's phone number?
4: Right. That was that's a big red flag, especially when because the police already know that Alex Cox moved up here with Lori. Right. He moved. Yeah. they, They weren't living together, but they were living what, across the street?
3: Across the, yeah, just across the way in the same apartment complex. The same apartment
4: complex. You're you're close. You obviously have your sister's phone number. This is not an estranged, you know, brother-sister relationship. You yeah. live 20 feet away. Exactly. You have your sister's phone number.
3: Exactly. I mean, the last picture of Tylee was in Yellowstone with with Alex and Lori. So again, a close relationship.
4: Right. And so I think as as Hermesio said... This is red flags. And I'm sure a seasoned detective like Hermosillo, who's been doing this for a very long time. You know, red flags have to be going off in his mind.
3: No. And the biggest red flag of all um, was Chad Daybell saying he doesn't know Lori well. Well, Hermosillo has already confirmed that the two have been married for about two weeks already.
4: Right. I This this has to be a pretty obvious situation of Chad just assuming that the police just don't know.
3: Again, playing it cool. That's really that's really kind of the MO throughout this entire case for for well Chad and Lori they're not saying anything, but especially Chad.
4: Right. And I you you'd have to imagine that he thinks we we got married in Hawaii, we just got married 2 weeks ago. He doesn't know about this, mm-hmm. right? This this Rexburg police officer, police detective. Exactly.
3: Small potatoes, Idaho.
4: Right. Uh, little did he know Hermesio was was up on it, mm-hmm. right? He he had everything that has to be just such a massive red flag. Well, I'm just trying to find out where these kids are. Or, you know, specifically, like, I'm looking for JJ. Why? Why are you guys lying to me all of a sudden? What no, is happening here?
3: And again, too, um, I want to note that at one point when hermesio was talking to um to Chad and Alex, I believe, they he had asked where JJ was and they had said that he was with Kay Woodcock. And then Hermesio said directly to them, that can't be because that's who called me to come here and check on JJ.
4: Absolutely. Uh, again, I think it's just th- obviously Chad and, and Alex and Lori, for that matter, had no idea what police knew or what they didn't mm-hmm. know at this point. And so I think they're just trying to misdirect just get the oh no he's out of out of state he's out of town he's with a friend Exactly He's oh did I say K I meant he's with Melanie Gibb mm-hmm. And police diligently diligently followed all of these these lies essentially followed all of them up they confirmed with Melanie Gibb when Lori said on multiple times oh JJ's with Melanie Gibb mm-hmm. they're at the movies the detective Hermosillo even remembers uh, the movie. She said, "She said they're seeing Frozen 2. He's with mm-hmm. Melanie Gibb right now." They immediately called Melanie Gibb, and she said, "No, he's not with me. That that's not true. I haven't seen JJ in you know x x amount of time.
3: Yeah, knows absolutely nothing."
4: And so I think <clears throat> I think this really goes down to this was good police work mm-hmm. that they yeah. continued to follow it up. And once you know, this is Detective Hermosillo. By all accounts, is just a rock star of a of a detective. You know, he got that that spidey spidey sense was tingling, mm-hmm. right? And he Listening said, "Listening to his gut, we we got to we got to follow up with this. Something's wrong." He even says he, as soon as he was done talking with Chad and realized that he'd been lied to, he called his lieutenant and said, "Grab some of the detectives. We need to figure out what's going on here. Like this, something's not right." Mm-hmm. Right.
3: And then it really started. So let's really uh, fast forward a little bit to June 9th of 2020.
8: An area of concern because there was uh, longer grass and, and weeds that were longer than about a four by two section where there was there was shorter grass and just a little bit of dirt showing. So initially that's what caught our attention in that area.
6: Okay. Uh what happened there?
8: Uh the evidence recovery team began doing their thing as far as marking it off um and and getting it ready to to excavate.
6: Okay. Did you witness that excavation? I did. As <laughs> um, that excavation took place, uh, what did you observe?
8: <clears throat> I observed uh, the ERT team remove the top layer of soil in that area, and um, as they began removing the top layer of soil, it began to expose three large white rocks. Uh, and at that point, uh, there was a strong odor of, uh, through my training experience, it was a decomposing body.
6: Okay. Is that something you've smelled before?
8: Unfortunately, yes.
6: Okay. Uh- did they uncover those rocks?
8: They did. Under under the the three large rocks, there was two pieces of wood paneling,
6: thin wood paneling,
8: um, under the under the rocks.
6: <laughs> okay. Um, were those removed?
8: They were removed.
6: Okay. What happened after that, or what did you observe after that?
8: Once we removed the, the wood paneling, there were you could definitely see a difference in soil. Uh, the soil began to look moist, um, so you had a, a definite distinction between the soil on the outside and the soil in the middle of this area where we began excavating. Um, and so, the ERT team slowly, methodically, started brushing away the the moist. Soil where we were at.
6: Okay. And I, I just want to ask you a clarifying question. Were you physically aiding in the excavation?
8: Not then. I was not. No.
6: Okay. Uh, were you watching the evidence, re- the FBI team do that?
8: Yes. I was watching them do yeah. that.
6: Once those panels were, well, you've already testified to that. Uh, what, what did you observe next?
8: They began removing the soil. Um, once they started removing the soil, slowly, methodically, we began to see a black, round uh, object starting to protrude through the dirt, um, just, just a few inches deep. It wasn't very deep at all before we saw the the, the round object. It appeared, looking at it, it appeared to be like a, a texture of a plastic bag.
6: Okay. Uh, did they continue to uncover that? They did. What did you observe?
8: They scraped away some more soil uh, around that round object. And it began to take the shape of the crown of... It looked like the crown of a head protruding through the dirt.
6: Okay. What action was taken next? Uh,
8: We continued, or they continued to dig around that... What we started to call the burial site. um, And eventually exposed uh, what appeared to be a small body wrapped in black plastic.
6: Okay. Uh, at any time, was that plastic cut into?
8: The top of the plastic was cut into where, uh, where it had been exposed on the crown of the head, yes.
6: Okay. And do you know what the purpose for that was? <clears throat> uh,
8: we wanted to see exactly what it was without uh, manipulating or damaging any of the evidence. So the ERT leader, Steve Daniels, used a, a sharp instrument, made a slit down the the top of the plastic. Uh, it exposed a piece of white plastic underneath that. Uh, a slit was made in the white plastic and eventually... Uh, we were able to see that look like brown human hair.
6: Okay. What did you observe Mm -hmm. at that point?
8: At that point, we were then told that Chad Daybell was, uh, leaving his daughter's residence at a high rate of speed. His daughter lives caddy corner to his residence. Um, so we were told he was leaving at a high rate of speed, um, and at that time, uh, Chad Daybell was pulled over and taken into custody.
6: Okay. At that time, did you re- uh return to what you referred to as the burial site by the tree? Yes, I did. Okay. What did you observe after that? <clears throat>
8: Eventually, all the dirt was removed from the the small body wrapped in plastic. Um, the body was then uh, photographed. ERT took their measurements. Uh, the body was eventually removed from the burial site and put into a black body bag which was locked for evidence purposes and placed in the back of the coroner's vehicle on scene.
6: I want to ask you a clarifying question. Uh, you're referring to a body. <clears throat> Had you, other than the slit in the head area, you testi- you testified correct that this body, this body was in a black plastic bag. Correct. Correct. Did you remove any of the other black plastic at that time?
8: No, it was just, when I testified to that, it was just the shape of a small body wrapped in black plastic.
6: Okay. And you state, uh, what was done with that after it was removed from that site?
8: It was placed in the back of the coroner's vehicle uh, and driven to the morgue uh, by the Fremont County coroner and a Fremont County deputy. Uh, myself and Lieutenant Ron Ball followed behind that vehicle all the way until we got to the morgue where it was
6: turned over. Okay. Uh, after you took that uh, body to the morgue, what did you do?
8: We went back to the Daybell residence uh, to assist with with further excavation.
6: Okay. Was there another area that was searched in on the Daybell residence that day? There was. If I could ask, is there a, a pointer that the witness can use?
7: I think we do have a laser pointer available.
1: Okay. Picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
7: For the record, Mr. Woodland, there is pointing, if you would just verbally describe what's being pointed out, that'll help it be clear later when it's read.
6: Thank you. Um, Detective, uh, before we move on, can you uh, use the pointer to point to the area we've recently been di- discussing? Objection vague.
7: Just point the whole to proper the area rejection. where... Hang on a second. Depending on overruled. You
6: can inquire. Okay. Well, and to clarify, can you point to the area where the body was found in black plastic?
8: There is a tree right here on this side of the tree, just underneath Uh, the body was found in black plastic, just underneath that tree.
6: Okay. Thank you. You had mentioned a fire pit earlier. Yes, sir. Can you point to where that is?
8: Fire pit is right around here.
6: All right. So you testified you went up to uh, the morgue at the hospital, and you, at that point you came back to the Daybell residence on June 9th, correct? Correct. Uh, and I had asked if there was another area being searched that day. Can you point to where that other area is?
7: Right here. Okay. Could you describe
6: that, Ms. Yes. Wood, please? Can you can you describe where you're pointing?
8: So, through the course of our investigation, it was brought up that uh, that was known to the Daybell family as the pet cemetery, and uh, they described the pet cemetery as having a little black dog statue. That was right next to the pet cemetery. So that's how we knew it as the pet cemetery. And here there's a black dog statue. And so this was the pet cemetery area.
6: Thank you. And what did you observe when you returned, uh, from the morgue?
8: When I returned, they were had already the ERT team had already Began excavating a part of that pet cemetery. Um, they had dug down a little bit, um, not too much, and that's when I arrived back on scene.
6: Okay. And what did you do at that point?
8: At that point, uh, I walked over to the pet cemetery area. I began observing, um, in digging down, they located uh, items of interest that we needed to slow down and and dig more methodically. So at that point, uh, a few of us got on our hands and knees and began digging um, around this this uh, moist section of dirt.
6: Okay. Uh, and then what did you observe?
8: As we began digging, uh, we were on our hands and knees. Um, we started to uncover, uh, just burnt flesh, um, charred bone. Um, the, the smell was, uh, again, of a decomposing body. Um, We had to take turns digging because the smell was so bad. We could only dig for a couple of minutes. Um, So we slowly began digging that.
6: When you say slowly, uh, what tools were you using to dig?
8: Paint brushes, little trowels, just something so we can get just a little bit of dirt up without damaging anything in the ground.
6: Okay. And what did you find in that spot?
8: Eventually we uncovered uh, bits and pieces of Tylee, who we assumed was Tylee, um, that had been burned. Uh, there were pieces of bone, like I said, charred, charred flesh um, uh, just the best I can describe is just globs of of, of flesh that were falling apart
4: that is I, d- I don't know how else to say this this is that was it's difficult to hear I know in the newsroom here we've got Um, our reporter, Angela Kernel, who's been doing a remarkable job covering this, um, spoken, spoken with her. I know all of us here in the newsroom as we're following along and, uh, doing, doing reporting on this as well. Um, the, these moments were, were difficult and at the, I think at the best of it, it was difficult. And, there were several moments I think, for me personally, just to be honest, uh, brought a tear to my eye. It was, it was, it's really hard to listen to.
3: No, it it is. Um, it's it's the kind of details that really weigh on your heart that take you. You know, it's it just it hurts. It hurts because you know that they're just kids.
4: It, it it hurts just on a human level. Mm-hmm. It it hurts, and I think to see how. And forgive me i don't i don't feel like i have the right words i think to see how disrespectfully their bodies were treated Mm -hmm. even after they were murdered the i think the details of like the duct tape over over jj Mm -hmm. yeah um just being put in with like the plastic bags the the, the duct tape over his hands, um, I think it just it hurts it it hurts on it on a very human level.
3: Yeah, no it it's it's hard to even think about the level of dehumanization that that had to be going on in Chad Daybell's mind or Lori Vallow's mind to be able to to not only think this up and have that premeditation, but to actually act it out in the way that it happened.
4: Absolutely, and then I think, um. I think the part with with Ty Lee where clearly clearly um, whether it was it was Chad or Lori or Alex uh, who was trying to essentially trying to cremate Mm -hmm, um, the remains not realizing that a crematorium a cremation oven can get to like what is it 10,000 degrees it takes to.
3: Yeah, again. Actually, yes.
4: do that. You're not going to do this in your your fireplace. You're not going to successfully cremate a body in the the backyard fire pit.
3: No, backwoods creation cremation. It's not going to work.
4: It's not. And the details of some of the things Detective Hermosillo said that I think really hurt. That well, really stuck out.
3: Well, I mean, because his detailed account, it really shows. I mean, because it does it details how the detectives found JJ and Tylee, but it also shows how these detectives went about exhuming them from that spot and when when you listen to the court audio and and Hermosillo talking us through what he saw looking through his eyes, I think that that hits even harder
4: uh absolutely I think I think really understanding when and how much care and mm-hmm. effort these, detectives all all put into this when Hermesio describes when they first had found Tylee's remains that the smell coming out of out of the hole was so bad that they could only dig for a minute or two and then they were having to switch because the the smell was overwhelming them but the fact that they continued on right these are
3: I mean and, and from these details, too, like having the two white rocks on top of kind of a, a plywood. I mean, this was this was I'm inter- I'm just interested to know what Chad thought he was doing. Right. Because all of this is very off base from what you normally see from murders.
4: Yeah. I think something that stood out to me as well was that in the the bag with mm. JJ, there was a blanket placed yeah. over him now again we're not detectives mm-hmm. right yep. um but from my years of watching uh, ncis and yep. you know every other courtroom or or you know police procedural um i think that me that is somebody who is i i don't want to say that it's necessarily a sign of remorse putting an item that the the child cared about or the person cared about mm-hmm. But it, it does seem to indicate some level of affection that like if you're a murderer murdering someone you don't know, you're not necessarily going to go get their favorite blanket to bury them well, with.
3: And that's the thing with this case being so sinister in the way that these these kids were found. And then that that tu- that that touch of humanity almost amidst all of this. It yeah. No, it just it makes your stomach. It just oh, it just makes your soul sick.
4: It. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think you said it best. It makes your soul sick. This is just the worst parts of, of humanity and, and we're, we're not done. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think, uh, this next part was, uh, detective Hermesio at the autopsy of JJ. And this can only be described as it, it gets worse from here.
6: what did you observe in states exhibit 12c
8: this is after the medical examiner first cut down the white plastic bag uh, like I testified earlier he had a a strip of duct tape around his mouth from jawline to jawline um, as you can see his his skin's going through various stages of decomposition um, but he was still recognizable with the brown hair and facial features that we had seen in the photographs um, for the last eight months.
3: All right. The defense then cross-examines Detective Hermosillo, and the cross-examination seemed to be largely focused around points of just clarification.
4: That's, that's what I thought. I... I don't envy the defense counsel mm-hmm. um, through any of this trial, but I think Detective Hermosillo was really a tough nut to crack. I think he brought a mountain of evidence. Mm-hmm. I think the prosecution set Hermosillo up to be a, the big... Um,
3: the Yeah, the big witness.
4: The big witness for a lot of things. Um, he was there to testify about finding the bodies he was there to testify about the investigation that led up to it and how how kind of all of that happened so he's really what you might call like the linchpin of of all of that no definitely and there's so much there and it felt like i don't know you know again i'm not an attorney Hmm. i don't know what you would do with that except you can points of clarification you're trying to poke holes in it but i don't after having listened to it, after having reported on it, and as you know, we're very involved in Mm -hmm. obviously reporting this. I don't know what you, aside from just trying to poke holes in it, but he brought a mountain of evidence. He's just testified to everything. What, What would you try and train do with that
3: the defense didn't have much to be able to go off of again they really just clarified and and tried tried to move towards corrections of certain things but never really getting there um right. so again yeah no it's it's kind of just fell flat once again it almost felt like like he was um taking you know like ordering in a way ask i mean asking these questions there just wasn't much to
7: So, and and the reason that you were at uh, Lori's apartment was um, for a welfare check on on JJ, is that right? On
8: the 26th?
7: Yes, I'm sorry, on the 26th of November, 2019.
8: Yes, that's correct.
7: All right. And you indicated that you called uh, Lieutenant Ball, Lieutenant Ron Ball, um, who is kind of Over you, is that right? That's right. All right. And so, um, you thought there was some suspicious activity, uh, with regards to your conversation. And then you decided to get a warrant. Uh, so what was, what was the basis of getting the warrant?
8: The basis of the warrant was the actions of Mr. Daybell. Mr. Cox, on the 26th, the fact that we were advised that J.J. was with a family friend who later determined that there was, J.J. was never with her, that was a lie, uh, based on...
7: Well, hold on, I apologize for breaking in, but when you said based on the family friend, that didn't happen when you went to go get the warrant, right? That happened later, Right.
8: No, sir, that happened the 26th. That night, we were able to confirm that J.J. was not with Melanie Gibb, and that was not the case.
7: Okay. So, and after that conversation, that was when you were going to go to the prosecutor's office and get the warrant?
8: After the conversation that with Melanie Gibb. Ron Ball and Dave Stubbs had with Lori Vallow, Mm-hmm where she told those detectives that J.J. was at a movie with Melanie Gibb at Frozen 2. Yes. Once we were able to talk to Melanie Gibb, Melanie Gibb says that is not true. That was a lie. That was not the case. The next morning, we obtained the search warrant.
7: Okay. So, But what you testified on direct exam, and I'm not trying to trip you up. I'm just trying to figure out what what actually, what the sequence of events was. You talked to Chad. He finally gave up Lori's phone number. You called Lieutenant Ball, thought that it was suspicious. Dave Stubbs arrives, then knock on 175, no answer. All those are correct, right?
8: Correct. Okay.
7: Uh, then you go and knock on 174, which was Melanie Pawlowski, Melanie uh, Bedreau's House is that right? Correct. No answer. Correct. Okay. And then it says the next thing I have, and this this is probably me says, go into the prosecu go to the prosecutor's office to get a warrant. Is that what happened?
8: That's correct.
7: Okay. So this was before anybody called Melanie Gibb and found out that there was uh, uh, that that they weren't at frozen 2, right?
8: No sir. Okay. So. Originally, we went to go get the warrant, and if you remember, I testified that when we were at the prosecutors to get the warrant, Lori Vallow then called Detective Hope back, and she was advised to open her front door. Then Lori spoke with the detectives, and that's where the body cam with Lieutenant Ball and Dave Stubbs come in, where Lori admits that J.J. was with a family friend
7: but you were already at the prosecutor's office getting the warrant or attempting to get a warrant, right?
8: That's correct.
7: Okay. And what was the basis? What was the crime that was committed that you needed to get a warrant?
8: We didn't obtain the warrant.
7: I know, but in order to... Okay. So you just went to the prosecutor's office hoping to get a warrant on a hunch?
8: It wasn't a hunch. It was based on uh, the lies that we were being told, Uh, the concern that we had for J.J. at that
7: point. What was the crime?
8: Lying to the police about the whereabouts of JJ.
7: And that's what the warrant was going to be
8: based on? We didn't get the warrant, sir.
7: I know you didn't get the warrant, but you said you attempted to get a warrant or you walked over to get a warrant.
8: I I can't speculate whether the judge would have given us the warrant or not. Okay.
4: I think it was really difficult, and I'm sure for the defense that had to have been really tough, just... Mm -hmm. He just really he I think, you know, at least in my mind, that was the silver bullet. He just laid out. Here's everything we have. Here's how we found the bodies. Here's the investigation that led up to it. Right now, as the defense, you know, I I don't know what you do, but I'm I'm kind of surprised that they didn't try and attack anything a little bit harder just from the standpoint that. This is the basis of the case is right here yeah this is the the meat and potatoes of the case and it it seemed to be just a really um like you like you said, I think you said it best they spent a lot of time just kind of clarifying so you've been a detective for how many mm-hmm. years like that kind of thing and it was just a it was.
3: Exactly, it was like a little laundry list. It, it in comparison to the prosecution with Hermosillo, yeah. Again, you you can't really compare it.
4: Right. Now, one of the last clips that we have here uh, from this week is from uh, Lieutenant Wilmore. He was one of the multiple officers that we saw uh, that was that were was called to testify uh, so far this week. He brought in with him a recording of a phone call that happened between Chad and Lori. Can you kind of set the scene for us? What what was happening with, when when was this phone call? What what set it up for us here?
3: All right, so let's set the scene because this is Chad Daybell's property. Police are there searching for the children in his backyard. Um, again, tensions very high. Chad at the house at the time. Now he leaves while police are there at his home and goes across the street to his daughter's home and makes a phone call. And that phone call is to Lori Vallow.
4: Right, Lori is in jail. We should remind everyone of the the timeline. This is in June of 2020. Lori was arrested in January Mm -hmm. in Hawaii. She's already been brought back to Idaho. So she's sitting in jail. And then Chad uh, is now calling her while she's in jail. We've got that recording here.
5: Lieutenant, you testified in States Exhibit 33. Uh, it was a call made between Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell on June 9th, 2020. Uh, does that date catch your attention? Yes. What catches your attention about it? Uh, that was the date that a search was made out at Chad Daybell's property. And when it, the search was, um, conducted and, and the bodies of JJ and Taylor. were found. And you were made aware of it that morning. Yes. Your Honor, I would request that we publish states 33 to the jury.
7: Any objection to that being published? No, Your Honor. All right, exhibit 33 may be published to the jury.
2: Damn. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. If you don't wish to talk, hang up now. Thank you for using CallMate. Hey, Nick.
7: Hello. Are you okay? No, oh, they're searching. The house
6: right Yeah. Yeah. My okay.
2: I'll we'll be talking to you. Okay. Well, are they in the
6: house? No, they're out in the property.
3: we'll see what transpires.
4: We'll see what transpires. What I yeah. What what?
3: See, so again, he's calling Lori at the jail, telling her we'll see what happens and then takes off.
4: Right. In his truck. Right. I that that's panic, right? That's all that can be.
3: Yeah. No, again, this all happens within, you know, an hour, less than that.
4: Right he's already clearly on edge. He knows, okay, they're searching the property. They know more than they know something right now. They're out rooting around. They're digging around back Mm -hmm. there. And now they're looking in the place where interesting. This was something that Hermosillo testified to earlier. uh, And I think uh, Lieutenant Wilmore brought it up as well. But when Hermosillo was there, and Chad stepped out to make this phone call to Lori. He saw Chad kept looking at this tree and pond area that was in in the backyard while he was talking to Lori. Mm-hmm. That's where they ended up finding JJ.
3: Oh, I just got chills. Yeah, no, it's um, because he has. see Chad has been calm, cool, and collected throughout this entirety of of the investigation.
4: Right. He, he's not saying a word when he does say something. It's evasive or kind of an outright lie. Then just panics, gets in his car and takes off at what is described as, quote unquote, a high rate of speed. Where does he think he's going?
3: Yeah. Like, yeah. And little and again, uh, little does he know that there are a lot of police, also even Boise police out there lining the highway. Boise prepared.
4: police were in Rexburg. We should. Put the, for everyone who's not in Idaho who might be listening to this, Boise is in the southwest corner. We're about, what, 45 minutes, an hour from the Oregon border?
3: Yeah, very close.
4: We're very close. We're in the southwest tip. Rexburg is all the way on the other end uh, the other side. It's in eastern Idaho. It's what, about five, six-hour drive from here?
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking it up right now. It's about a five-hour drive.
4: A five-hour drive on the freeway, mind you. <laughs> yeah, again. And so Boise police were out in Rexburg to help. They brought everybody in. Idaho State Police were there. The FBI yeah. were there. One of, uh, one of the reporters who's been covering this since the beginning, Nate mm-hmm. Eaton with East Idaho News, he was in a chopper yeah, when no. this was happening. You're not you're not going anywhere. That just has to be just sheer panic. He's heading for the hills. He's trying to trying to do anything. Last ditch effort, right? No, exactly. Yeah. Pretty uh pretty shocking. Well, as we're recording this, um, I'm gonna pull up pull up our accounts, see what, see what we've missed so far. But mm-hmm. um Melanie Gibb, who at least was, I think it's safe to say, was uh, Lori's uh, best friend mm-hmm. is on the stand. She's testifying right now as we record this. And one of the things that I found really interesting this morning, as we were we're watching the live tweeting coming from Angela Kerndle, who's been covering uh, covering this case so well for uh, this trial so well for us. Um, I think one of the interesting things that I'm noticing is that she's actually d- get shedding a lot of light on something that we've really mm-hmm. kind of only been able to scratch the surface on, which is a lot of their beliefs, yeah. right?
3: I mean, and that's really what brought Chad and Lori together. I mean, they met at a religious conference, what was it, back in 2018? Right, yeah. 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 So um, it's interesting because, of course, they are of the LDS faith. Um, and and Melanie Gibb also says that of herself as well. But um, But as time went on, this is kind of what Melanie's laying out right now with her testimony, is how that relationship, how they met, and then how as time went on, that relationship between Lori and Chad changed, but also her relationship with Lori and Melanie.
4: Right. I think one of the things that stood out to me in kind of the early, early testimony. Again, she's on the stand as we're recording this right now. I think one of the things that stood out to me quite a bit though, was she's describing something that we reported on in the first two episodes when we were Mm -hmm. really kind of laying out everything is that Chad and Lori believed, or maybe still believe, uh, but believed that People are light or dark. And this is something that she's really actually uh, describing in a lot more detail. She said that uh, according to their according to Chad and Lori, that people are who are light, quote unquote, had signed a contract with the savior before they were born. People who are dark had signed a contract with Satan before they were born and came to Earth. But apparently you're also able to switch between light and dark. I,
3: I think that might have been a later development within their uh, their beliefs.
4: Of convenience, maybe.
3: They, I mean, Melanie also with her testimony today is laying out kind of how those beliefs did change as, as Lori got closer to Chad. Because again, they were together on their Preparing a People podcast. Um, I believe her and Melanie, Lori and Melanie, were together on that for quite a few podcasts and then chad started coming on the show interesting
4: yeah i i know we've we've been able to kind of hear or find bits and pieces i believe all of that stuff has been taken taken down it's hard to find it it really is hard to find we've been we've been digging we're going to continue to dig Mm -hmm. if we're able to um, pull up anything substantial from that we will definitely uh, update that right here
3: though but yeah, no the and for those that maybe don't know, the preparing people podcast was essentially a podcast um, by by these people preparing their group for the end of times or doomsday
4: right. yeah, uh, they uh, Lori had told Melanie about the one hundred and forty four thousand who would be left during the end times and that Chad and Lori were supposed to lead them, lead those one hundred and forty four thousand. Through the end times, I thought something else that stood out to me in her er, her early testimony here mm-hmm. was that um, Chad had met Lori and while they were at, I believe, uh, while they were at Temple, mm, yes, he told Lori that they had been married to each other in previous lives, multiple
3: yeah, so when they went to the temple, this is a big one too. Um, so in the Mormon faith, um, families are sealed together. Right. For those that that don't know, um, and throughout these lifetimes, they were saying that Chad and Lori had been married. So they actually went to the temple at one point and said that they were sealed by Jesus Christ. But again, this didn't happen in a sealing room, which is where within their religion that does take place. They said it just happened in the waiting room of the temple.
4: Right. This I think that actually sheds more light on Chad and Chad and Chad and Lori's relationship mm-hmm. and their state of mind right if Chad is telling Lori we've been married for multiple lifetimes together this is manipulation this is mm-hmm. this is control they're both married at this time it was according to to other er, people. To other people. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm sorry. They're. Sorry, both I want to clarify that. Yeah, Thank they are married
3: you. to other people at this point.
4: They are married to other people at this point, and this is a very weird. This, this is this is control, right? Mm-hmm. This is manipulation. Oh, black and white. And then it's interesting because it seems like that kind of also talks to Chad, who's trying to kind of skirt the rules. Right In their religion, if sealing your family means that you're sealed together for eternity. Mm-hmm.
3: Again, through, through lifetimes.
4: Through lifetimes, right? You're sealed together for eternity, but you're supposed to do it in this sacred sealing room mm-hmm. in the temple. And Chad realizing that's probably not going to happen. We're yeah. both married to other people. That's, they
3: might not like that.
4: So let's do it in the waiting room. We're still in the temple. We were, and so it's just this form of him being able to, the, both of them, Chad and Lori, being able to say, "Well, we were sealed together in the temple."
0: Mm-hmm.
4: You're, you're, you're skirting the rules, right? You're kind of making making your own rules up here. I uh, yeah, that's a that's a interesting thing.
3: Oh also another one too from uh, Melanie's testimony today which um, is an interesting thing one too uh so Melanie's saying that Lori um, also claiming that she had at one point been married to the prophet Moroni from the Book of Mormon whoa so again um for those that don't know the the angel Moroni sits atop um all the LDS temples right he, it's the golden um essentially the golden man standing atop the temples
4: right with the the big trumpet right mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. Um that is that is fascinating. There's so much more that we're gonna be learning as Gibbs testimony comes out here. We're gonna to continue to report on this, so follow along with us both on Facebook and our Twitter. We're mm-hmm. at CBS2 Boise on both of those places. We also have a live blog that we're updating throughout each day of the trial on IdahoNews.com. You'll see it as our our top story there. Um and you know, oh, go ahead.
3: No, of course, and we'll be back um, next week, recapping everything from the week, getting any breaking news and updates right here. So again, be sure to subscribe, ring that notification bell from wherever you're listening, and of course, turn on those notifications.
4: Absolutely, and if there's any breaking news or anything that comes through, we will be sure to get that out. Uh, you know, earlier than our regular Friday morning Oof, uh, yeah. update here. So stay with us. Um, yeah, thanks for listening.
3: Yeah, thank you. This is Gem State: the trials of Chad and Lori Daybell. I'm Sarah Jacobson.
4: And I'm Ryan Oswald.
3: Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.